All right, so sometimes I think the, the, the greatest success stories are when you have two people to, that, that are successful, two people that by themselves have been successful in some form of life, and then they decide to join forces, so to speak. I think that's when some of the greatest success stories really take place. So when two successful people come together and join an even more successful team. You see this happen a lot in sports. Uh, whether you like it or not, in sports you're going to see a, a star that is so good in and of himself, and then at some point in his career he's going to move to another team to where he can have even more success at this other team and he forms this super team, right? And some people hate the idea of a super team, but if you look into it, those are the games that get the most viewers, okay? So whether you like it or not, okay, those are the games that are going to get the most viewers. By the way, LeBron James did not make the super team. You ever heard of the Celtics in the 60s? Okay, Bill Russell. You ever heard of uh, Magic Johnson? Okay, so don't just blame it on LeBron. I've said my piece, okay? You're going to see this happen. Two successful people create this super team that's unstoppable, unbeatable in certain ways, right? You also see it happen in business a lot. Sometimes in business you have these, these two rival companies that are so accustomed to, to going against one another that they, they finally come to their senses and they, they meet with one another and say, hey, think about all how much more we could do if we combine forces. And so sometimes in business you see these two successful companies coming together and, and, and deciding to build uh, this huge conglomerate business. And because of that, they're able to do triple the amount of business uh, of, that they were formerly able to do. A famous example of this, maybe some of you know about, maybe some of you don't, but a famous example of this is what we tonight have in our pockets. 55% of American people have this little apple in their pocket. I'm not talking about a Golden Delicious or a Granny Smith. I'm talking about this iPhone, right? 55% of Americans have an iPhone in their pocket. And many of you may know the story of how Apple came to be. Maybe you don't. Tonight, we're going to talk about that a little bit. If you don't know how Apple came into prominence over the last couple of decades, it's truly an amazing story. I encourage you to look into how Apple became what it is today. But there is a reason why Apple Company has such a huge market share on America. 55% of the market share goes to Apple iPhones. Samsung is second. You know, those people that make all of your group text turn green, right? Those are those people, right? The Samsung, the 30% the, the goes to them. But there's a reason why iPhone has just, and, and, and Apple in general, has become such a big uh, deal in our country today. It took a visionary to make it happen. It took a, a, a guy who, who was visionary and he had a dream and, and he had all of these brilliant ideas. In fact, some people would contend that this guy right here, his name is Steve Jobs, 
Some people would contend that this is one of the smartest men who's ever walked the face of the earth. But for Apple to become the, the giant in technology that we know them to be tonight, for them to become that, it took a man who was willing to dream, who was willing to step outside the bounds of what people thought were possible. A man who was willing to believe something was possible without really having any evidence for it being possible. That's what it took for Apple to be what it is tonight. And no one can look at Steve Jobs and, and the impact that he had and, and diminish the role that he played in shaping the technological world that we all live in tonight. But the argument could be made the argument could be made when it comes to Apple Company that it takes much more than just a visionary to make a company great. It takes much more than just a dreamer to make a company successful. It takes someone who is able to bring those visions and bring those dreams to fruition, to bring them to life. For Apple to become the company that we know them to be tonight, it took another guy by the name of Steve. His name is Steve Wozniak, but I'm not saying Wozniak right. Forgive me. That's not a name you come upon much. But it took a guy named Steve Wozniak to make Apple what it is today. Wozniak was the one who took all of Steve Jobs' crazy ideas all of his crazy visions and his crazy dreams for this technological company, he took all of them and he made them a reality. He was able to listen to all of these ideas Steve Jobs had and actually make them happen because of how smart and intellectual he was. He was the only one who, at the time, could bring those dreams to life. And without Wozniak, we may not even know who Steve Jobs is tonight. Because it takes much more than someone that has a dream. It takes much more than someone who has some, a, a simple vision. It takes someone who's able to make the vision happen. And so these are these two guys that started out in the basement uh, working on Apple Company. And because Jobs and Wozniak were able to come together at the right place, at the right time, they were able to complement each other so well that we have this unparalleled technology that we know tonight. Steve, brought, Steve Jobs brought the vision and he brought the dream and Steve Wozniak brought the ingenuity and the intellect to make those dreams happen. In our study tonight of the restoration movement, in our, in our study, our two-quarter long study of, of to be continued, we are finally going to get to see the two branches of the restoration movement come together and join forces. Just like these two men that complement each other so well, we're going to see that happen tonight. And because of their joining forces, because of their uniting and joining in hands, we're going to see how much more they were able to do together than they would ever have been able to do separate. Tonight, we are going to be able to see how the movements of Stone and Campbell 
were able to finally unite into one brotherhood. Before we get into that, let's remember what brought us to this point tonight. Thus far in our study, in phase one of our study, we we introduced ourselves to the movement, this idea of, of biblical restoration all throughout the Bible. We were able to see how God expects His people to restore things when things get off track. We were able to talk about the destination for the restoration is to be the church that God intended, and nothing short of that. We're able to talk about the first step in restoration is taking a step back and and observing all the different things we do in our faith and in our life and asking the question, is this departing to the right or departing to the left? Is, Is this drifting away from God's will in any way? And that was phase one of our study. In phase two of our study, we talked about the foundation of the movement. We went all the way back to ancient Rome, and we, we discovered how Rome uh, messed the church up so badly over a thousand different years. That's the thousand years of confusion you see on the screen there. And then we got all the way to the Reformation movement, and we talked about how without the, restor- without the Reformation, there would have never been a restoration. And we were able to talk about the roots of the restoration we find in Scotland. And so the past few weeks, we've been in phase three of our study. Tonight, we conclude phase three of our study. We started out by talking about Barton W. Stone's last will and testament in 1804. We started talking about Thomas Campbell's declaration and address, which was in 1809. And we talked about Alexander Campbell's sermon on the law the last time we were together that he he gave in 1816. Tonight, we conclude our study of phase three of the movement by talking about Stone and Campbell finally coming together and uniting forces. We're going to be discovering how these two branches became one. And at this point of our study, we've talked about some of the prolific moments that have happened in these men's lives. We've talked about these prolific moments, these prolific writings or sermons or whatever it might be that has brought us to this point in our study tonight. But these prolific moments and writings were what made and gave way to what we're talking about tonight. As the last will and testament was written and the declaration and address was written and the sermon on the law was given thousands and thousands and thousands of people were starting to come to a knowledge of the truth. Though they were coming to a knowledge of the truth at the same time, in the same way, with the same information, just running alongside each other parallel and never coming together at a certain point. But because of these moments in Stone and Campbell's lives, thousands of people that were dissatisfied with their denominationalism decided to leave denominationalism behind and decided to put the Bible and put his church first in their lives. Because of Stone's last will and testament, we talked, we've talked about how there were already somewhere close to 20,000 people calling themselves Christians and Christians alone in the states of Kentucky and Ohio. We've talked about after the declaration and address and after the sermon on the law that thousands of more people were uniting under this same restoration plea in the states of Indiana and Missouri and and a few others. 
So at the time of our lessons tonight, you have two different movements that are saying the same thing, looking the same way, believing the same thing, sounding the same way, thinking the same way, but instead of ever joining forces, they're just running alongside one another, separate for some reason. In our last class, we talked about the results of the Sermon on the Law that Alexander Campbell gave. We, we talked about the result of that was that was the final death knell in, in the relationship that he had with the Baptists. Remember, he aligned himself with the Baptists simply to get an audience, not because he thought of himself as a Baptist. But this, was the, this sermon he gave was the death knell in his relationship with the Baptist. So what happened after that is he had to, he had to find some people that were like-minded. It was time for him to, to find some people that were of the like mind that he had. Because this relationship continued to, to grow and grow further and further and further apart, there was a need for Campbell and his, and his, his brethren to find some people who were like-minded. To find some people who were wanting to go back to the Bible and the Bible alone. We talked about some of his preaching last week, but Alexander also was the most prolific writer of the time as well. He had a, a periodical known as the Christian Baptist. Uh, notice that title again. Again, he didn't think of himself as a Baptist. He just wanted the audience of the Baptist at the time. And so these periodicals and these articles that he would write was one of the absolute major ways that the cause of the restoration was perpetrated throughout the years. Perpetuated throughout the years. That's how the, the, the cause of the restoration plea and the restoration principle, that's how it was continued on. But in the year 1823, Alexander published a new periodical entitled, again, The Christian Baptist. And in this article, he used this publication, this periodical, as a vehicle to teach and expand the movement by talking about and thinking through some of the doctrines, discussing them and disseminating them down to the readers for them to take into their lives. And from time to time... He would even include these debates that he would have with other people from denominations. He, he would take a transcript of the debate and put it into this periodical so that people could see the pros and the cons and the back and the forth and, and how he reasoned through some of these different things. And, and it was very, very influential for people who read this uh, periodical. And because of this periodical, it led to more and more separation from denominational groups. And it was there that in this periodical, the goal that he had was to talk about the restoration of the ancient order of things. That's the way he, that's the way he talked about New Testament Christianity. Restoring the ancient order of things. Things that had become so out of order the goal of the restoration movement was to put it back into the ancient order of things. And the Christian Baptist periodical is how he would do that. He would take issues and put 
what God's word says on one side and then what denominations say on the other. And he would ask the question, where's the discrepancy here? And he would take God's word and put it on one side and put the human written creeds on the other and say, Where is the, where's the problem here? Is the problem in what man wrote or what God wrote? And thousands and thousands of people started to understand, maybe for the first time, the problem with the Protestant church at the time. And in one of these periodicals, an important distinction was made on the difference between a reformer and a restorer, right? Because we've talked about the reformers like Martin Luther and, and Holdrich Zwingli and John Calvin, but he wanted to distinguish himself from, I'm not just a reformer, I'm a restorer. And so he says this. This is what Bill Humble says about this periodical. Humble says, Campbell began the series by distinguishing between reformation and restoration. He acknowledged that many reformations had been attempted and that the reformers had been great benefactors of mankind. But whereas human systems could not be reformed, Campbell denied that it was proper to speak of reforming Christianity. What Campbell insisted was a restoration of the ancient order of things. And this would be achieved by bringing the church up to the standard of the New Testament. If this could be done, the result would be a golden age for Christianity. The millennium is how Campbell liked to talk about it. And because of that, end of that quote, if, if you know anything about restoration history, we know that he did not entitle his periodical The Christian Baptist Forever. What did he start calling his periodical? The Millennial Harbinger. Maybe you've heard of that before. Maybe, maybe you have some copies of some of those writings before. He called his, his writings from then on the Millennial Harbinger, talking about this golden age of Christianity that he foresaw when it comes to restoration and the restoration movement. And think about this line, the, the, the ancient order of things. If, if, if you're a studier of the restoration movement, it's probably possible that you have come across Earl Irvin West's writings. Anybody know Earl Irvin West? He wrote The Search for the Ancient Order. These are books on my floor this morning. Uh, these are all of his books by Earl Irvin West, The Search for the Ancient Order. He has uh, five volumes there writing about some of the history of the Restoration Movement. Great, great resource if, if you're looking and interested in this. But the reason that we take the time to talk about some of these writings and some of the, the Christian Baptists and, and the Millennial Harbinger and some of these different things that we can read about, the reason we talk about these sermons and debates and writings from Campbell's and other restorers is because those were the vehicle. These, these things were the vehicle at the time to attract more and more people to the restoration plea. Thousands upon thousands of people were craving for the very things that Campbell and Stone were writing in their periodicals. And so as people would listen to sermons or as people would read certain articles, they would be learning about these fundamental principles that they had missed out on, that they had neglected in their life. They grew more and more willing to leave all that they had known behind to join the restoration because of this. 
as the sermons were preached, as the debates were being had, as the writings were being published, Stone and Campbell's followers were becoming more and more alike, whether they realized it or not. Stone's followers and Campbell's followers were saying the same things, thinking the same things, believing the same things, but just going alongside one another. Stone and Campbell built their movements on the exact same principles, on the exact same beliefs from one another, and the exact same goal simply to restore New Testament Christianity. And as we mentioned earlier, once Campbell was able to separate himself from, some, from the denominations like the Baptists, he, he was then able to join people of like mind in Stone's movement. Humble also says this, the separation of the Campbells, reformers from the Baptists, prepared the way for the next important event in Restoration history the uniting of the Stone and Campbell movements. As long as the Reformers were a reforming party within the Baptist denomination, any thought of merging with Stone's Christians would have been premature. Still, as the two restoration groups spread throughout the same areas, contacts between them were inevitable. So what Humble is saying is, as they were going in these debates and these articles and, and these sermons and these gospel meetings, they were running up on each other all the time. People that were following Stone and people that were following Campbell were going to the same events. They just weren't aligned with one another completely. And so them coming into contact with each other was inevitable, as Humble says. But in 1832, in eight, this is important day, in 1832... After years and years of these movements running alongside one another, many years of, of preaching the same message of restoration, the Stone Movement and the Campbell Movement became the Restoration Movement. That's the distinction. It's no longer Stone's movement and Campbell's movement. It's, it, in 1832, it's now called the Restoration Movement. And it's because in 1832 they finally met Alexander Campbell and, and Barton W. Stone. They, they, they had met previously before, but they had come together to discuss this idea of unity in 1832. In Lexington, Kentucky, they came together to talk about a potential joining of forces. And when they got together, they realized they had a lot of similarities. They had, they had striking similarities. In fact, they had, they had so exponentially more similarities than they had differences. And here are some of those. Both Campbell and Stone's movements accepted Scripture as the sole authority for Christian faith and denied all creedal statements that cannot be bound to the church. Remember we talked about adding and take away and binding and loosening in, the one, in that one class. They believe that, that when it comes to man-written things, it can't be bound on the church in any way. They distinguish between matters of faith and matters of opinion. That's a similarity that they had between the, the two of them. Another one is that they both pleaded for Christian unity on the basis of a return to the Bible. 
Remember back in the Declaration and Address, the number one thing about the Declaration and Address was what? Unity. Unity. That somehow, some way, all these different people believing different things and coming from different backgrounds can somehow find unity. And both Stone and Campbell believed that that unity could be achieved if people would simply look at the Bible. In fact, uh, Stone once said this. He said, For nearly 30 years we have taught that sectarianism is anti-Christian and that all Christians should be united in the one body of Christ, the same body that they teach. He said that in 1831 about the Campbell movement. So they both believe Christian unity was to be found in returning to the Scriptures. They also believed and taught against Calvinistic theology. They denied certain doctrines like predestination and limited atonement, and instead they preached the exact opposite. They believed that the gospel should be preached to all men, and that all men can believe and obey, and that all men can come to a knowledge of the truth, and that the Lord's promise is not slack, and He desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, right? They preached the very opposite of some of these Calvinistic uh, theologies. They both rejected infant baptism at the time, and they both practiced immersion of believers, people who know right from wrong. Not only that, but they refused to wear unscriptural or sectarian names, denominational names like Catholics or Methodists or Baptists, these names that were man-made and not in the Scriptures themselves. They wanted to be named something that you find in the Scriptures, and we talked about that in our study of Stone a few weeks ago. They both taught that there was some relation between baptism and the forgiveness of sins. We're going to get that in a second. But they both, last one, last similarity is they both regarded denominational organizations like presbyteries or synods or associations. Remember, uh, Thomas Campbell was a part of the Christian Association of Washington, Pennsylvania, right? No more. Remember, Stone was a part of the uh, Springfield Presbytery when he wrote the Last Will and Testament? No more. No more man-made associations like that or denominational organizations. Instead, the only one we can be a part of is the Lord's Church. That's the institution we belong to, not some man-made organization. But along with all of these similarities, there were also differences. There were also differences between the, the, the Campbell movement and the Stone movement, and these are some of those. Both Campbell and Stone disagreed about what name they should go by. Many of us know this. We talked about a few weeks ago that, that Barton W. Stone really believed in the name Christian. Why? Well, in Acts 11.26, they at first, at Antioch, they were called Christians at Antioch. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 16, right? Peter says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, right? Acts 26 verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. So Stone had all of this reason why it should be Christian. 
But Campbell had just as much credence, just as much biblical proof for the word disciple, right? We see the word disciple all throughout the Gospels and all throughout the New Testament epistles, that we are to be disciples of Christ. And so they, they, they disagreed on what they should go by. And in fact, this one was never really resolved. People that were with Stone, Stone continued to be called Christians, and people that were with Campbell continued to be called disciples. They decided that this difference wasn't enough to keep them from unity. That this difference wasn't, 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 didn't mean enough to allow them to, to not be together. So let's look, let me flip the page here. All right, so when we think about this, they both had absolute rights, scripturally speaking, on the name that they would go by. But what they agreed upon was that both of these names... Both of these names, whichever one you go by, is scriptural. Both of these names are found in the scriptures. And so because of that, there's no reason that we can't fellowship with one another based off of this semantic difference. And so they didn't allow this difference to keep them from fellowshipping with one another. Another difference is that they, dis they disagreed about the essentiality of immersion. They didn't disagree about the essentiality of baptism but when you come to Campbell Campbell believed that immersion was to be compelled upon anyone anyone trying to follow Jesus and Stone believed as long as they believed that this was for the forgiveness of sins he would not require them to be immersed again well, we remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about Campbell himself and Thomas himself that they were they were immersed for the remission of sins, so was Stone. He just didn't make it an essentiality. And notice this about this issue, though. He, he would one day understand it the way we understand it tonight. After many years of, of, of being around Alexander, he would understand the truth about the essentiality of immersion. But we're talking about right when the merger was happening, right, right when the forces were being joined for the first time, at, right at this beginning, he didn't see it that way. He would see it that way years later. Another difference is how they wanted to convict the lost. Okay, Just in general speaking, generally speaking, they had different approaches. All of the people that were with Campbell would focus on the head, the intellect. They would focus on uh, how to logically win someone over. They would talk about uh, the... the the logical reasoning of debate and writing and some of these logical things, whereas Stone and his followers would talk about the emotion that needs to go into salvation and talk about how the gospel is to prick hearts. Right? We see that in Acts chapter 2. They were pricked to the heart. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. That was how Stone wanted to go about it, is attack their heart, and Campbell wanted to attack their head. So Stone's movement stressed the emotional side of religion that pricked the heart of the convert to Christ. Campbell's movement stressed the intellectual side of religion and stimulated the mind to convert the lost. Who cares, right? 
I, I, I'm looking back at this and, and saying, I don't care how you convict the lost as long as you convict the lost the right way. It takes all kinds, right? It takes all kinds of, 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 of preaching and speaking and teaching to reach all kinds of people in the audience. So just like we can see this tonight as not that big of a difference, they didn't see it as that big of a difference. Because just like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, it took both of them. It took a dreamer and it took a, a guy who could make it happen. The same thing here with Stone and Campbell. It took a guy who was willing to prick hearts and a guy who was willing to convince the mind. What they came down to, these two men had a decision to make. They had a decision to make in 1832 on whether they were going to actually practice what they preach. Remember, the, 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 the message of the movement from the very beginning was unity. Unity in the restoration. That we can all come together to God's Word together and find unity. Well, now they're faced with that exact decision. Are they going to continue to go separate ways and, and, and running alongside of one another and maybe perhaps over years creating some enmity between one another as if they're some kind of rivals? Or are they going to allow these differences to dissipate so that they can be one united movement? So what they decided to do, we, we all know, it's called the Stone Campbell Movement. They decided to unite. They decided not to allow these differences to keep them from, from being united with one another. And it all came to a head at this meeting in Lexington, Kentucky in 1832. This man by the name of John Raccoon Smith. All right. I feel like the Live and Goods, maybe the Reginbalds. I don't know what y'all have got planned, but really tuck away that raccoon name. Raccoon Reginbald, right? You like that? What a name, right? That's, that's what you learn when you go back to the restoration movement, right? You learn these amazing names. Raccoon Smith. I mean, I would hire that guy in a moment if I didn't think he would, you know, do something crazy. But John Raccoon Smith, okay? This is an amazing figure in the restoration movement. I, you, you should definitely look him up and learn more about him. He was the one that actually put it to words how they needed to put these differences aside. At this meeting in 1832, John Raccoon Smith, he was a preacher on Campbell's side of the movement. He said it best when he said, Let us then, my brethren, no longer be Campbellites or Stoneites, new lights or old lights, or any other kind of lights, but let us come to the Bible and to the Bible alone as the only book in the world that can give us all the light that we need. And then Humble says, on this basis, he and Stone exchanged the right hand of fellowship in action symbolizing the uniting of the two groups. You might remember that phrasing. Extending the right hand of fellowship. Where do we find that? Any of you scholars know of, of God's word? You find that right in Galatians chapter 2. 
when Peter and Paul have this great dispute over circumcision and, and over, over the Christians there at the church in Galatia, in this great meeting, this council that happens in the book of Acts, right? At the end of the council, Peter and Paul extended the right hand of fellowship to mark that they were together on this matter, to mark that there is unity. There is no more perfect example of how the restoration movement tried to pattern themselves after God's word than them literally doing the very thing, shaking hands, Stone and Campbell shaking hands between each other. I just think that's very cool that they would do and take that step. And what happens next? What happens next in the movement is, is quite powerful when you think about it. When I, when I think about this thought that I'm about to talk about, I don't know what it would go, how it would go across today. But when this happened, when they extended the right hand of fellowship, we, we can learn from history that John Raccoon Smith and, and John Rogers, these were people, John, uh, Raccoon Smith was from Campbell's side and, and John Rogers was from Stone's side, they joined forces too. And they would go from town to town preaching the same message of unity. And what they would do is they would go to the congregation that had been established by Stone and they would grab some leaders from here and they would go to the congregation that aligned themselves with Campbell and they would grab some leaders here and they would get them in a room and say, we don't need to have two churches. We don't need to have two congregations anymore. And they would urge those two congregations, any city that had two congregations, they would urge them to become one congregation. Imagine that. Can you imagine being compelled and urged to, to join, to merge and join forces in, in unity with another? You know, I come from an area in North Alabama, in Limestone County. We probably have more churches of Christ than we have gas stations. We probably have more churches of Christ than we have people, it feels like. I grew up feeling like I could throw a rock and hit a church of Christ. I'm not kidding. In my, in my county alone, this was back then, I don't know what the numbers are now, we had 53 churches of Christ. In the county beside it, it was Lauderdale County, they had 72 churches of Christ in one county. We know that this happens all the time. But here at the beginning, when these movements came together, here were these men willing to go congregation to congregation pleading for unity. What a powerful thought for us to think about tonight. John T. Johnson was a writer frequently for Stone's periodical. And in Stone's periodical, he wrote this, the Christian messenger. He wrote this, What could we do but unite? We compared notes. We found ourselves to be congregated on the same divine creed, the Bible. We had the same king, the same faith, the same law. We could not do otherwise than unite in Christian love. It's a powerful way to think about it. When we look at what Stone would say about this, Stone would say that, that this unity was the thing he was most proud of in all of his life. 
deciding to unite with, with Campbell was the proudest thing, the noblest act of his life. Why was this? Because Stone realized how important that decision was. Stone realized that if he had not have decided to become one movement and unite, he wouldn't have had the greatest proof of the restoration principle. And the restoration principle, this restoration plea, this restoration theology that we can all become one under the same word of God. Yes. I've never, uh, I've never come across that. I'd have to study that myself. Uh, I've never heard of that, but um, I think what we've learned throughout this class thus far, by the way, if you're watching online, uh, Brother Jim Whitmire has asked the question, um, Campbell perhaps didn't believe that the, the Gospels were a part of the New Testament, and Stone did. How, how, how does that uh, affect their evangelism, and how does that affect uh, their teaching and so I was just saying that I, I've never run into that in my studies I'd love to study that with you some some more and, and hear what your sources are on that but what we've learned in this study thus far is when it comes to the restoration just the same way Stone didn't completely understand immersion at the beginning it was something he grew to understand later on and so what we see multiple times throughout this study, the restoration, is that restoration isn't a light switch. It's something that happens over many and many, many weeks, many, many months, maybe even many years to undo all of the false teaching that had happened before. Let's proceed. When we come to the restoration movement, this restoration principle that was set forth by Thomas Campbell in the Declaration and Address, it's finally been achieved. It's finally been achieved that Stone and Campbell are walking hand in hand together. What, Stone, what, what, what Campbell envisioned has finally happened. And this is what uh, Humble says. He says, What happened at Lexington in 1832 was a demonstration in actual practice that the restoration principle could produce unity. Tonight, as we think about Stone and Campbell deciding to unite, just ask yourself the question, what would have happened if they chose not to unite? What if they chose not to become a brotherhood? What if, what if they chose not to be one movement? It would have discredited their entire premise. It would have discredited the entire premise of the restoration principle that we can, regardless of background, come together and be a part of the Lord's church, the Lord's body. It would have discredited that their whole lives were built on the idea that this isn't my movement, this isn't Campbell's movement and Stone's movement, this, this movement started all the way back in Acts chapter 2. If they had not have united that would have been discredited. And throughout our study of the restoration movement, multiple times we've talked about the idea of this water boiling. 
the water boiling up hotter and hotter as these new figures continue to be introduced into the movement. But when we think about what happened tonight in our study, the water is not only boiling, but it's one of those times you got to run into the kitchen because you think the house is going to burn down hot. You ever been there? Water's running down the sides. You hear the sizzle. I got to get over there. Turn it off. That's how hot the water was, how hot the boiling water was after Stone and Campbell came together. Now there was no stopping the restoration movement. Now that pride had been put away and any kind of, of sectarianism in between Stone and Campbell had been put away but mainly because they humbled themselves under the same hope and belief that they could restore the original church together. What happened after this unity was a decade long, multiple decades, of nothing but growth for the restoration movement. Unprecedented growth all throughout America in fact, this happened in 1832, and at the time, they, they suggest anywhere from 20 to 30,000 people were in these movements. And less than 30 years later, in 1860, scholars say there were anywhere from 200,000 to 250,000 people calling themselves Christians under the Restoration Movement. From 25,000 to 250,000. Man, can you imagine? Can you imagine the growth? Tonight as we try to bring this lesson home and make it matter to us, as we try to make it, make it matter to me tonight, there is one question that's pretty clear to me that we should each ask ourselves. And that is, what am I willing to do for the kingdom of God? Ask yourself, what, what are you willing to do for the kingdom of God? What level of humility are you willing to submit yourself to for the growth of the Lord's church? Tonight we have seen a message of humility from start to finish. We have talked about humility that made the restoration movement different than anyone that had come before and made the restoration leaders different than anyone that had come before. Instead of allowing personal pride to take root in their heart, they allowed humility to flow out of their heart. The leaders of the restoration movement had a true willingness to learn when they were wrong to learn what God's Word had to say. They had a true willingness to lessen themselves so that God's will could be accomplished. They had a willingness to submit to doctrine, to submit to practices, to submit to beliefs that they hadn't formally believed. All for the sake of the kingdom. Doing that is hard. Putting aside what you have formerly believed is hard. We have people in this room tonight who were not raised in the church. 
How hard was it to unlearn some of those doctrines that you had learned in your life? How hard was it to humble yourself to know that perhaps you were wrong? In the restoration movement, we see thousands and thousands of of listeners and readers that were willing to humble themselves and leave all that they had known behind in order to restore New Testament Christianity. Stone and Campbell themselves tonight in our study humbled themselves. Instead of wanting all of the fame of being the leader all by themselves, they humbled themselves for the cause of the restoration. You know, humility is hard. It's a hard thing to come by these days. Do you feel that way? Humility is a hard thing to come by these days. But it's at the bedrock of Christianity. Without humility, no one is going to deny themselves. No one is going to submit to God's will. No one is going to be able to love their neighbor as themselves. No one is going to be able to practice anything that the New Testament prescribes for faith, for life, and for practice. Without humility, nothing can be done in Christianity. When we think about humility, it's a bedrock of Christianity. But you know what else is a bedrock of Christianity? Unity. And you know one thing about unity is, you cannot have unity if you do not have humility. Once the disciples and Christians united into one movement, they went from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands in a few decades. Instead of swapping members and just swelling, they had actual growth. And that's because they showed the denominational world that it was time to restore the ancient order of things. Without humility, there would have never been a restoration movement. There may have been a stone movement. There may have been a Campbell movement. But once the two humbly united, it was forever the restoration movement. We know scripture after scripture that talks about humility in the New Testament. How it has to be that one of the number one traits of a Christian is humility. In Ephesians 4 and verse 2, Paul says, With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Lowliness. In Philippians 2 and verse 3, Paul says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. In James chapter 4 and verse 10, James says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 16, or in verse 6, excuse me. Peter says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. And lastly, in John 17 and verse 21, this is part of our, our, our mission here at the Buford Church, part of the Lord's church mission 
is to accomplish what John chapter 17 and verse 21 says. When Jesus himself in the garden says that they all may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. Brethren, humility is not our natural instinct, is it? Humility is, is, is not a natural thing, I would contend, for us today. But I'll tell you one thing. If Christ can humble himself, Philippians 2, Christ humbled himself. He emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. Taking on the form of bondservant. He endured the cross. Because he humbled himself under that mighty hand of God. Philippians 2 says that God has given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. If Jesus can humble himself, then I better too. With our study tonight, we have completed phase three of the movement, the formation of the movement. Now that we have seen the introduction, the foundation, and the formation, we are finally ready to talk about phase four of our study, which is going to be the instruction of the movement. And this is where we're going to be able to talk about what the restoration movement had to say about specific issues in the church, like women's roles or instrumental music or baptism or missionary societies, and yes, even the Civil War. That's where our study is headed in the future, but that is to be continued. Let's go to God in a quick word of prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you so much for the day that you blessed us with, the opportunity to come together and to think about uh, Stone and Campbell coming together in, in unity and humility. We pray that we will take this message into our own lives and try to find solutions to the relationships that we aren't united in in our life. That we can seek out those relationships, whether it be as a congregation or whether it be individually, and seek to unite with common faith in you. We thank you so much for your word that's able to take anyone from any background and unite them into the same gospel, the same church, and the same Savior. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.